The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V and pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Hello, Tom. It's good to see you again. You too, Father. Thank you. Well, Father, we have a whole slate of wonderful emails tonight. Uh, we have quite the, quite the backlog in our inbox, so let's jump right in here to this first one who uh, this viewer says, I love your recent shows and the little-known information about the Took consecrations, but what do you think about priests whose holy orders derive from Bishop Francis Chicard? Is there a similar sacrament ban on Chicard line adherence? Will I go to hell if years ago I received sacraments from a Chicard-ordained priest? Well, I can't tell anyone that he's, that he's going to go to hell, obviously. Um... <clears throat> uh, that depends on someone being in the state of mortal sin, which depends upon them giving full consent to something they know is seriously wrong. You know? And I, I mean, I can't, uh, to quote a famous phrase, I mean, who am I to judge? In this particular <laughs> case, you know, uh, there, has, there is a correct application to that, okay? There's also the Francis application, which is completely wrong. But <clears throat> in any case, um, uh, the Schuchart, the um Orders that he that, that Francis Schuchard received. I, I don't know if people really know exactly who he's referring to. Perhaps there are those uh, viewers who and have no idea what this means. But Francis Schuchard was a um, an emissary of the, I guess, the Blue Army right, years ago, and uh, traveled the country spreading the message of the Blue Army. Unfortunately. Um, he uh, fell in with um, uh, an old Catholic, Daniel Q. Brown was his name. He was a man who had left the Catholic Church and gotten himself ordained and consecrated, ordained a priest and consecrated a bishop. <clears throat> Again, you know, there's always the, the doubtful nature of these things outside the church, with the old Catholic Church. Now, whether it was with uh, the North American Old Roman Catholic Church or the Old Roman Catholic Church of North America or one of the other seven uh, different churches established by the excommunicate Arnold Harris Matthew, I, I don't know. But it was one of those old Catholic churches uh, that our Daniel Q. Brown went to receive um, holy orders from and uh, <clears throat> supposedly then the story goes that Daniel Q. Brown made his abjuration of error I think in the write up on this it was actually called <laughs> the abjuration of faith which, but anyway <clears throat> in a hotel room in Sandusky, Ohio and wound up then ordaining and consecrated, consecrating this layman Francis Schuchart who uh, started uh, his um, uh, organization in uh, Kirtland, Idaho, 
And uh, eventually, Schuchard wound up declaring himself a pope, at least to his closest confidants. He uh, supposedly dubbed himself Hadrian Seventh, I believe, <clears throat> and had them actually refer to him as Your Holiness and the whole nine yards, and dress in white and so on. And uh, the, whole, the whole affair blew up uh, in the press and the, even within the group uh, when it became known that he was, uh, uh, it became notorious that he was using drugs and he was uh, abusing young people who were there. And it was a very sordid mess. His closest followers uh, eventually turned on him and drove him out. Uh, Schuchart, and uh, I guess he wound up in California, and I don't know that he's still alive. I don't know. But anyway, they built on his foundation then. They continued on his foundation, uh, which was, again, schismatically established in the first place, and didn't change just because they eventually uh, chased him out of there. It was still a schismatic organization from the start. And uh, then they turned to the Took bishops in order to uh, secure their, their orders, they thought. And so the whole thing is one vast sort of mess. <clears throat> uh, not Catholic. And, uh, you know, to say that this gentleman uh, would be going to hell because years ago he received sacraments from them would... Uh, you know, is not is not by say. I would say, was it wrong to do so? Yes, objectively it is. Did he know that it was wrong to do so? I'd like to give him the benefit of the doubt and, and think that he thought he was doing the right thing, okay, at the time, so that he had was morally culpable for doing it. I, I can't say that. <clears throat> Only he would know that if he had... Um, you know, bad motives in doing it, and he should have known better. And But anyway, the fact is that I can say right now that knowing what he knows or should know about this whole outfit, to go to them for uh, sacraments would be morally wrong. What he knew then and what he intended then, I can't tell. Um, but if he's asking, would it now be morally wrong to go to them, I'd say definitely. Uh, and yes, I, I'm convinced it would be mortally sinful to go to them uh, under the circumstances. So I would just tell him he should steer clear of any of the Schuchart, um any of the Schuchart machinations there. From the moment he went off and had himself sacrilegiously ordained and, uh, and uh, consecrated uh, by this... Um, uh, Daniel Q. Brown, I, I think at that point, from that point on, without no doubt about it, one should not associate with him in any way, or any of his works, or any of his pomps, okay? Mount St. Michael's, or any of the other outfits that he established. Okay. Let's move on to another uh, another consecration then, where this viewer wrote in and said, uh, please ask Father to talk about what happened at the 1990 ordinations of Father Greenwald and Father Bomberger. There is so much confusion on what happened during their ordination that I am not sure I would feel comfortable approaching these two priests for the sacraments. 
I've heard that Bishop Mendez did not say the correct form the first time and had to go back and do it over again. Some claim that he had to do it a third time. Why do the priests who were present at the ordination not all agree on what exactly happened? Uh, well, actually, I would think that if you got them all together, all the priests who were there, they would they would all agree on what happened. Okay, but I, I think Father Jacada is largely responsible for spreading a lot of mis disinformation about this, and I think the reason why he's taken upon himself to spread the disinformation is because he resents the fact that we continue to find problems with the Turk consecrations, and so I think this is his way of sort of. Uh, um, uh, what should I say uh, delicately uh, just uh, um, uh, striking back in a sense okay uh, Father Jacana wasn't present by the way and uh, so he, he only goes from hearsay okay um, but we've actually addressed this question before I was there. In fact, I was standing at Bishop Mendez's right hand uh, during the uh, the actual moment of ordination, reading the essential form of ordination. And uh, as I say, this has been addressed before, and I just you know consistently explain the same course of events that happened there. So I don't blame this individual for being confused because there is a deliberate attempt to confuse people, such as this dear soul, who just wants to know the truth, you know. Well, I can tell you exactly what I know, and what I know is I was right there at the time. Um, and uh, uh, Bishop Mendez was seated here, and I was standing by his side, and Father Do Father. Uh, Greenwell and Father Bomberger then, deacons, came forward and <clears throat> uh, were ordained by Bishop Mendez. He had the uh, the pontificale, which he was using, and uh, it was not his own pontificale that he was used to using. It was a, uh, a very ornate, beautiful uh, pontifical um, dating back, um, you know, over a hundred years, actually. <clears throat> and um, Bishop Mendes spoke very deliberately the words. He even said out loud, uh, uh, well, I, I should say, he said under his breath, but loud enough for me to hear. And uh, he said, "This, these are the essential words. This is the essential form. And he, he went with his finger, and he went and followed word for word, syllable by syllable, the essential form. He was being very careful about it. Actually, so much so I was very impressed that he was being very focused in reading the essential words for the ordination of priests. <laughs> and... Um, after Bishop Mendez completed that, he then began to, to continue. And Bishop Kelly, Father Kelly at the time, who was there with Father Zapp, Father Kelly came over to me and he said, did you hear any problem with that? And I said, no, I didn't. 
And I was following along, I mean, actually following with Bishop Mendez as he was saying the form. And uh, Bishop Kelly said, or Father Kelly said, well, have him do it again. And I said, well, why? He said, well, just have him do it again then. He, he couldn't even tell me why there was a problem. You know, he didn't know. He said, well, just have him do it again. So, so I very reluctantly, you know, leaned over to Bishop Mendez and I said, uh, Bishop Mendez, would you, would you repeat the form conditionally? Because it, you know, it was clearly in my mind. There was no issue, no problem, it was fine. So, so anyway, <clears throat> so Bishop Mendes, actually being a rather humble soul, um, was willing to just nod his head and say, well, all right, you know, he, he accepted that. So he went back and again, with his finger, he traced word for word, so long as so, he repeated everything very carefully the uh, conditionally the words for the form of ordaining the priest you know and then much to my utter dismay bishop kelly father kelly came over to me again and said did you hear anything wrong with that and i said no there was nothing wrong with that that was perfectly fine and then father kelly said to me well have him have him repeat it you know and i really uh was having serious misgivings about asking bishop mendez to do that again because there was no problem. I mean, <clears throat> the other priest, who was there on the other side, he had no problem either. You know, the two of us were there for that very purpose, to detect if there was a problem. And uh, to have this happen, uh, it, it just was not good. So, I, I mean, I thought it very awkward. <laughs> but I dutifully leaned <laughs> over and asked, Bishop Mendez to please <clears throat> if he would repeat it again and conditionally and at this point Bishop Mendez said well there's nothing wrong why and uh, but I thought he was response his response was very mild and so he said bring me my book <clears throat> so they produced the rituale which was a a, a much uh, less ornate and, and much simpler form, but everything was there. And Bishop Mendez went right to the form, and he repeated that conditionally. He read it off very fluently, <clears throat> came to the end, and then he turned to me and said, but that's what I said. And I said, yes, Your Excellency, I, I know. And so he put that away, and then he continued the prayers. And uh, I will tell you, uh, in all honesty, if I had been the bishop, I would, uh, who was the ordaining bishop, I would not have taken that as pacifically as Bishop Mendes did. You know? I think I would have been a little bit um, uh, unhappy and perhaps made it somewhat known. Uh, I'm a bit more choleric about these things, I suppose. But uh, if I had been approached by anyone at that point and told, well, you know, did you hear a problem? Haven't you? I would have said, no, go away. <laughs> no, this is not right. But the upshot of all this is that um, if anyone 
was validly ordained. In the history of mankind, I think it would have to be Father Bomberger and Father Greenwell, from what I saw there, right there, at that time. Uh, because there was no doubt, okay, uh, that, uh, that, the, that the very, in my mind, clearly, no doubt that and Bishop Mendez pronounced those words of the formula for the ordination of priests the very first time there was no issue. And uh, it, it even took us quite a while, and it took Bishop Kelly even, or Father Kelly, a while to identify why he even heard a problem at all. No one else there. Not us who were reading along with Bishop Mendez or anyone else present detected any difficulty whatsoever. Um, and it was actually decided upon later as we were looking at the pontifical that we'd given Bishop Mendez to use, is that as he was reading along, he came to the end of the line and there was a hyphenated word, and he went to the back of the line and continued from there. Okay? And some kind of split-second uh, hesitation. No, Bishop Mendez did not pronounce that one word as though it were two. Did, there was no problem with accent, accentuation or anything. <clears throat> but just as he was going from the end of one line to the other, I, I guess that was enough. Um, and um, there was no problem. <clears throat> there really was no problem with it at all. And if I would risk my soul on that, and the souls of others, uh, I'm t I tend to be scrupulous about these things right uh, too. Um, but in this case, I would have to say that this was really the result of uh, being over overly scrupulous. Mm -hmm. Um, so this is the best that I personally could <clears throat> determine as to why there would not have anything that, that Father Kelly heard that was, that, that he couldn't even, it was so subtle that he couldn't even, uh, identify for quite some time why there was a problem. But there wasn't. <clears throat> and I knew it. And, uh, um, but that's all that Father Chicago needs to try to make some hay, <laughs> okay, uh, in, in, in some kind of retribution for the fact that we have consistently said from the very beginning that there are issues with the two consecrations, and then there are, honest. As Father Chicago himself said and wrote very forcefully originally, before he changed his mind, uh, and we did not. <laughs> okay, there are there are some serious issues that are verifiable, objective issues, not merely subjective, uh, as at best or at worst that one could make of that. So mm -hmm. uh, I can just say I was I was there. I witnessed the ordinations of Father Bumberg and Father uh, Greenwell, and there there was no problem. They were, they were perfectly valid. Yeah. Father, I don't, I don't have the, the quote in front of me, but I, I believe I, I've read before that 
when Father Chicago was confronted about this, he's even admitted before that mm-hmm. he doesn't really have a problem with it. He was just trying to make the point of that yeah. any consecration, any ordination can be questioned if we're, yeah. if we're too, too scrupulous. But I think that, well, that was... Well, Tom, I rest my case because, yes, it's exactly what I understand, too, that <laughs> he will acknowledge privately that he's just making mm-hmm. a, an issue of this to make some kind of other point. <laughs> and... Um, uh, that any ordination can be challenged, I suppose. But the point is that some rightfully so and some wrongfully sure. so. And in this case, this is wrongfully so. Sure. All right, well, let's move on then, uh, Father. We, we have an email from a viewer here who says that, uh, that if I could just summarize, she's uh, noticed that there are some traditional Catholic persons, uh, even from the Society of St. Pius V, who have been posting some Protestant Christmas songs on Facebook, like um, Mary Did You Know or Amazing Grace. And uh, she's kind of concerned about this because she says that uh, that this is that these are heretical songs of Protestant songs, uh, that Martin Luther, that he used music to spread his heresies and that he was more successful spreading heresies with his music even than, than with his preaching. And uh, she sees this as, as a big a big problem that uh, that even a lot of Catholics are interested in these these Protestant songs and she wants to know how exactly to go about confronting people about that and what are the apologetics behind these these Protestant Christmas songs how should we deal with them well it's not just Protestant Christmas songs um, it is true that Luther and be, before Luther even Arius the priest was spreading his Arian heresy using uh, music, putting little ditties in people's head, having them um, sing them. And, I mean, the way the, the modern propagandists for impurity are using music to inculcate these evil lyrics in people's heads, it is true that propagandists for her- heresies have been using these methods for quite some time. And, um, I mean, th- there's even uh, a song that you're hearing in... Uh, traditional Catholic churches now, oh, Lord of all loveliness, or Lord of all... Oh, God of loveliness? Oh, no, 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 no. see, I'm getting it mixed up there. Da, 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 you know? Um, but there was a hymn that was commissioned for a Protestant, by a Protestant divine, for a Protestant hymnal, in the 1800s or late or early 1900s, <clears throat> and he had it composed by a, an atheist, a woman who was an atheist. And um, again, I mean, what place does that have <clears throat> in in a Catholic church? Really, does it say anything explicitly heretical? No, not necessarily. But it's what it doesn't say that is can be an issue, you know. Uh, so, um, there are, I mean, the, the church has, has said that there is music that is simply unacceptable in the Catholic Church. One of the first official acts of Pope St. Pius X was to write the motu proprio Trale Selecitudine, in which he banned the modern and popular music, theatrical operatic pieces, um, there were more performances than they were uh, piety, <laughs> works of piety. And I, I'm sure he would ban these productions also, these works of uh, 
non-Catholics who are writing uh, hymns to, precisely to exclude the, the Catholic teaching. Um, and so I would say that if these pieces are being used, they should not be. Now, um, I will say this, there were times when uh, I think one of the pieces you mentioned was going to be performed at a Christmas concert here, and I insisted that it be altered um, when I found out that it was going to be done to reflect Catholic teaching and, um, you know, not to leave that. But this Mary, did you know? Did you know this? Did you know that? When the, well, of course, the church, Catholic Church says, well, of course Mary knew. <laughs> she knew. And why are we raising this question, right, in the hymn? Uh, we shouldn't be. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I agree with the, the premise of the writer that uh, we should not be reaching for these hymns <clears throat> that are really unworthy, um, especially at these times when we should be very, very clearly professing the faith, <clears throat> not obscuring it <coughs> by uh, citing the works of obscure minds. And let's face it, I mean, if, if there were writings on the index of forbidden books by the church because they didn't express the, the faith or called it into question, why would these songs not also be equally anathema to us? So I do think we have to be careful. If she's asking what should be done about it, well, I think <clears throat> that it is right for her to bring to their attention that these things are not really Catholic in origin or in spirit or in message and uh, to express, not in a sort of a haughty, arrogant way, but uh, simply, but in another a forthright way, you know, as if, it, you know, just to bring to their attention, it's like an FYI for your information, you know. Um, and then if they, people don't listen, then I think one has to take it up to the next level. And finally, uh, take it to their superiors and just uh, point out to them that, uh, again, not in a haughty sort of uh, arrogant way, but in a simple, humble way that these things are offensive to pious ears <laughs> and we should not have them. Mm -hmm. um, so, anyway, uh, yes, I, I sympathize, but actually empathize with the writer <laughs> Because I've heard such things, too, yeah. and uh, not wanted them to be performed the way they are written. Um, and actually, in, in a, a couple of cases, actually tell the people involved, I don't want them in any of our school performances, mm -hmm. certainly, so, uh, or in the churches, for that matter. Yeah. Sure, there's plenty of uh, traditional Catholic... <clears throat> Christmas hymns that we can choose from. Oh, so. oh my goodness. More, Absolutely. more than enough. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Well, Father, let's move on then to some questions about the Blessed Trinity. This viewer writes in and says that there are various Bible verses that say that Jesus has been given authority over creation by God. How can this be so if Jesus was already God? Could you read that down? Sure. Sorry. There are various Bible verses that say that Jesus has been given authority over creation by God. Mm -hmm. How can this be so if Jesus was already God? 
Okay, well, he is God, right? He is the Son of God, but he has made man, and as man, he can receive. I mean, as God received human nature, he took human nature, okay? Uh, which he didn't have before. When, when the Son of God became incarnate in the womb of the Blessed Mother, at that moment, God became man, taking human nature, and as man, he received life, and he receives, and he can say, I mean, our Lord says, all power in heaven and earth has been given to me, right? And uh, so as man, yes, he receives. Uh, he receives power. Um, so there, there's, no, there's no contradiction there. Uh, the soul of our Lord Jesus Christ was created. So as God, he is the uncreated, eternal God. As man, his human nature, is created. And the human, the human soul of Christ is a creature. And that creature can be exalted by God as it is, and as he is, and uh, given power. Uh, perhaps one good citation for that, one good reference, would be Pope Pius XI's encyclical Quas Primas of 1925, when Pope Pius XI established the feast day of the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ for the last Sunday in October every year, Pope Pius XI explained the twofold claim that our Lord has to the loyalty, allegiance, obedience of every single human being. And he says that our Lord Jesus Christ has the divine right as God and as the creator of all to the, the, the love, the loyalty, the obedience, and homage of every single human being. But he, he also has a, what he calls an acquired right. Okay? And that acquired right is something that he acquired <clears throat> as man, <clears throat> as the Redeemer, who had paid the price for the sins of all mankind. He has the acquired right to that same love and obedience and homage of all mankind. So he has a twofold right. One natural as this is owed to God, and the other acquired as man who has become who is our redeemer. Um, he uh, he also has that right that has come to him in his role as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, uh, the Redeemer, as they say. So uh, Pope Pius XI distinguishes those two. Mm -hmm. So for the scripture, I mean, let's face it, it's at certain times, uh, at one point, our Lord even says, the Father is greater than I. Okay. But at another time, our Lord is saying, the Father and I are one, and he who sees me sees the Father. Is our Lord contradicting himself? Not if one understands the basic, fundamental Catholic teaching that he is God and man. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, again, one might also object, 
Well, why do you focus on the tabernacle, you know, with Christ's presence? Because as God, he is everywhere, right? So why don't we worship him in the carpeting? Why don't we worship him in the light bulbs in the church, in the flames of the candles and so on? And we say, well, God is present there by his, his, his uh, you know, essence, his power, his presence in all things, the rocks, the, you know, the galaxies, the distant galaxies, and, and so on, the waterfalls. <clears throat> but he, God is present in a special way, obviously, by grace and the souls of the just. He has a divine presence there that is a unique presence. You know? uh, it's a supernatural presence. But our Lord Jesus Christ is present in the tabernacle, not only as God, but as man as well. And he's present everywhere as God, but he's not present everywhere as man. He's present everywhere as man in the Holy Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And so that's why he has given us that focus of his presence as God made man on that tabernacle, in the tabernacle and on the altar. So... Uh, again, I mean, we get back to the fact that God became man, and he has divine nature, and he has human nature, and uh, as God, he has the supremacy over all creation by his nature. But as man, he has acquired that by his sacrificial death for us on the cross. Mm -hmm. He has a, a couple more questions here, Father, that are in the same vein as that. Um, so he, he says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28, St. Paul writes that at the end of time, Jesus will hand the kingdom back to God the Father so that God may be, quote, all in all. This implies that Jesus is not himself God, as he must be put under the authority of God. Well, no, it gets back to the fact that as man... Uh, as man, Jesus Christ uh, delivers, as it were, delivers mankind to God. He is the mediator, right? And all mankind comes through Jesus Christ and, and his humanity to Almighty God. Um, it's not as though Christ holds that dominion somewhat to the exclusion of God or holds it away from God. And in the end, he's going to give it up and say, well, okay, you know, I'm going to turn it over to you now. <clears throat> it's that uh, our Lord says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And he says, says that not only as the Son of God, but he says that as the Son of God made man, <clears throat> that it is now through him that all mankind must come. Point being that all mankind can come to God the Father now because the Son of God has become man. And as man, Christ can represent them, die for them on the cross, and actually plead from the, for them from the cross for mercy. You know? So, again, I mean, you could understand those statements in, in the wrong way, but to understand them in the right way, in the Catholic way, you have to listen to the Church, you have to listen to what the Fathers of the Church have told us, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And um, the Church makes it very clear to us 
that when in the Gospels and throughout the writings of St. Paul, any of the New Testament writings, um, there is there is a statement like that uh, that the sacred writer is is making a very strong point about the true humanity of our Lord and his human nature. And uh, there is one person there who is the divine person of the Son of God. But in places it talks of him as God and with his divine nature. But there are other times that it talks about him as man and his human nature. <clears throat> if it's mysterious... Yes, it is. <laughs> it's the incarnation. It's the hypostatic union. It is mysterious. It is one of the divine mysteries. But when we um, read of these things in the scriptures, we have to understand that as the church understands it. Sure. Last thing you might say, Father, is uh, that the proclamation that Jesus is God seems to be lacking in scripture. Although it appears a few times ambiguously, if this were the central theme of the Gospels, I would have thought it would be more manifest. Would the explanation for this be similar to why Jesus instructs people not to let anyone know that he is the Messiah? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, you know, I would say that whoever is writing this really needs to go in and do homework and reading the, the, the Fathers of the Church. I mean, he, he's got to start reading St. Ambrose and St. Augustine and how the earliest Christian authorities, uh, the doctors and fathers of the church, understood this. Because it seems to me he's... At, I mean, I don't mean to criticize you. Know, I'm glad he's, he's asking these questions. They're good questions. They need good answers. I'm not saying that I have the best answers or that I can express, express them in the best way. But I'm saying these questions have been answered for hundreds of years already by the fathers of the church. <clears throat> and we can read the scriptures and we can come up with all kinds of uh, issues by, um, you know, seeing contradictions here and there that have already been clearly resolved <clears throat> by the writers of the church, especially the fathers early on. Um, all, of, all the way through the doctors of the church, St. Saint, Saint, uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas, has addressed these very questions, you know. So uh, I'm not saying they're bad questions. I'm just saying that the answers have already been, you know, addressed for many years. <clears throat> and uh, I would recommend that he go back and, and you know, uh, I mean, it's nice that he's asking me, but I am not a father or a doctor of the church. And I'm saying that uh, they have answers and address these questions. With regard to uh, the question though, that, that he just raised here, <clears throat> Maybe it'd be best if he, if he repeated that, because I don't want to risk um, misquoting or misinterpreting what he's saying. The proclamation that Jesus is God seems to be lacking in Scripture. Okay, well, this is not true. <clears throat> this is not true. <clears throat> in fact, it was very clearly understood by the Jewish leaders that Christ was saying that he is God. And they denounced him for this to Pontius Pilate. They understood very well. Uh, what our Lord was saying. And uh, he, he said it to his apostles, <coughs> and um, he referred to himself time and time again as son of man. But he never denied when he was called the son of God, uh, but actually affirmed it there before the Sanhedrin. 
for which they, they understood that he was guilty of blasphemy. That was the charge. That's the point. That's what they held up against him. That was the accusation that they said made him worthy of death. So I don't know how, how this man can say that, or if it is a man, a gentleman, maybe a lady, I have no idea. Uh, it's very rare that you and I rehearse these things or even talk about them ahead of time. So this is the first I'm hearing of them, of these particular uh, questions here. Um, St. Paul makes no uh, mystery of the fact that Christ is indeed the Son of God. Uh, and by the Son of God, meaning not just the adopted Son of God by grace, but he is the natural Son of God. You read the Gospels, and our Lord himself refers to my Father and your Father. He never makes, breaks down that barrier, that his relationship to the Father is not the same as ours. Ours is one of adoption by grace. His is one of the natural Son of God, who is the uh, true God of true God. <coughs> our Lord never denies that, calls that into question, or obscures that fact. And... Um, so, I'm not sure how we can possibly say that um, that this is not affirmed mm -hmm. clearly enough in the Gospels. Uh, the early Christians all understood it. The apostles thoroughly understood that this was exactly what our Lord said. I mean, <clears throat> when our Lord said, well, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they say, well, some say Elias, some say John the Baptist, and so on. And our Lord says in St. Matthew chapter 16, but who do you say that I am? And St. Peter speaks up, Simon, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And our Lord says, Blessed art thou, Son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this to thee, but my Father who is in heaven. That's pretty, pretty explicit. I don't know how anybody can argue that's not an explicit statement. Yeah. That Christ is affirming that he is the Son of God, and the Father himself revealed it to him. <clears throat> so... Um, Anyway, um, I would just say, uh, no, I, I don't agree. And Father, if I'm not mistaken, I, I believe, I believe uh, St. Saint, Saint Peter, in the, in the uh, beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, his first sermon that he gave after, after Pentecost to all the Jewish people there who had gathered, he, that was one of the central <laughs> themes uh, of, his, of his preaching there, was that Jesus <laughs> was God, this Mm -hmm. Just put him to death. Was well, this gentleman could. I'm just saying, a gentleman. Uh, I think. I assume it's a man, right? Uh, Can you verify? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't even. I haven't even seen it. Um, <clears throat> you know, he could object. Well, you know, Saint Peter might say that God raised him up. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, because that's said in the Gospels uh, and in the Epistles, it's like God raised up Jesus from the dead, and it's true. It was by his divine power that God raised the humanity of Jesus Christ from the dead, <clears throat> if you understand it correctly. But if somebody wanted to make a case, I mean, it would be a bad case, and it would be an incorrect case. One could quote that unto itself, isolate that statement, and make an argument from it. <clears throat> but it would be a false argument, because it would be taken out of the context <clears throat> Now, I don't believe this man is a Protestant, I don't know. <clears throat> but Protestants specialize in isolating parts of the sacred scripture, taking them out of context and building an entire case that really does contradict the scriptures in their entirety. 
And I, I, it sounds to me like that is the approach here. And that is why I recommend this gentleman uh, of saying very good will uh, and uh, just a desire to know and understand uh, that he turned to the fathers of the church who explained these things very cogently. Sure. Father, we received a couple emails about uh, some current events that have been happening with the capital of Israel being moved to Jerusalem. And some of our viewers would like to know if there's any connection between that happening and, and any kind of uh, prophecies from the Old Testament or in the, the book of Apocalypse. And one uh, writer here mentions that uh, John Paul II expressed the hope at the dawn of the 21st century that Jerusalem will become the city of peace for the entire world and that all the people will be able to meet there in particular, the believers and the religions that find their birthright in the faith of Abraham. So they'd like to know, Father, if there's some connection uh, between these happenings and uh, something in the, the Old Testament or the book of Apocalypse. And they'd also like to know if we will soon see the heir of a rebuilt temple. Yes, I believe I believe there is, these things factor into the fulfillment of prophecies. And I would say ap apocalyptical prophecies, okay? And uh, involving the construction of a third temple, a rebuilt temple. But uh, I understand that um, this will be the center of a humanistic worship of a, uh, through a one-world religion, ultimately um, dominated by the Antichrist. So... Uh, the answer, I would answer the question, at least personally, yes. I believe that these all are part of fulfillment of biblical prophecy, but they are kind of a dire warning. Uh, John, was it John Paul II who thought this is just great, that all of these different religions who claim Abraham um, can all get together and, and uh, sort of join hands and so on? <clears throat> but I'm afraid they deny Christ. <clears throat> uh, one, well, two of them, uh, Judaism and Islam, continue to deny Christ, even though they, they claim Abraham as a common ancestor. And uh, one even says that if you say that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you deserve to have your head cut off. And they're more than willing to oblige. Um so this idea that we're all going to sort of lock arms and, and sing Kumbaya in a third temple in Jerusalem and everything will be just just peachy kino and hunky-dory or whatever else, <laughs> one world religion. Um, this is wrong. Just wrong. And um, it's, uh, it's, wrong. it's kind of scary wrong because... Um, it's the kind of thinking that is going to push, uh, is busy pushing mankind in, the, in a very, very sinister direction. Why is it, Father, that, uh, that so many conservative people here in America are so excited about these events? Even That's because of a false idea that has been spread among them about uh, the Jews and the, the promised land and how this is... Uh, 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 you know, somehow the birthright of the Jews, re, you know, regaining a certain domin, dominance and uh, returning to their ancestral home and um, 
this is going to pave the way for the second coming. Um, but if you read the Gospels of St. Matthew and St. Luke about the second coming, uh, this is not exactly something to uh, start, you know, getting out the helium and filling it to party balloons. <clears throat> and uh, um, this is something to take very seriously when we see these things. What does, what does our Lord himself say when you see these things come to pass? <clears throat> he says, look up, lift up, raise up your heads because your redemption is at hand. But, and there are some who interpret that to mean that, gee, when you see all these dire predictions of disasters in the world and the mourning of the nations because of the, the dread of what's coming upon the whole world and the roaring of the sea and so on, that you should somehow be happy about this. So what our Lord is actually saying. <clears throat> but he says, look, raise up your eyes, raise up your head. His point is, <clears throat> don't look to the things of the world, because this is what all of the, the pagans and the worldlings will be doing, and this is what they're mourning, because the things of the world are going bad. But his point is, your thoughts should be in heaven, uh, your thoughts should be not buried in the things of the world, but raise your eyes away from the things of the world, detach yourselves from the things of the world, and rather look to me, you know? So, um, uh, that's, that's rather the message. You know, there are so many of these evangelical Christians, so-called, uh, who really follow as much of the gospel as they see, as they personally find acceptable, you know, uh, to them, who would say, well, you know, while the rest of the world is suffering all these disasters, uh, Christians should be, should be almost parting about the idea that the world's coming to an end, and Christ is coming, and gee, whoopee, that's great, hallelujah. And we, we realize that um, that's not exactly what our Lord is telling us. You know? He says, when you see these things come to pass, flee into the mountains. Don't even go back to take your cloak, you know. And uh, he even says that no flesh would be saved. And the Antichrist would come working such wonders so as to deceive even the elect, even the chosen souls of God, were the days not, uh, not shortened. Mm -hmm. So our Lord is not telling Christians that we should be, you know, ready to, you know, party at that time. Quite the contrary. These are days of mourning and sadness for the whole world. And there will, we will see great losses, okay, of our loved ones and so on. But our Lord's point is, don't let your thoughts be buried in the things of the world. Let your minds and your hearts be detached from the things of the world during these times, so you will not perish with the things of the world. Um, so I don't really know that that is an answer to the question or not. Do you think it addresses the question? I think so, yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Maybe the person who wrote the question would say that has nothing to do with what you're saying. <laughs> I'm sure we'll In which that. case, I hope they I hope they write back and say... Uh, could you please try again? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I would say to them, please try again. Yeah. It comes to it. Yeah. You know, we, we see, 
Also, in our Lord's talk about uh, the end of the world, we see in St. Matthew's Gospel, where he talks about the rising of false Christs and false prophets. And we, we do see these things. We've seen these things throughout the history of the church. Okay, There were false Christs and false prophets that arose out of the Gnostics, the Gnostic uh, irreligions. Uh, Bartizanas and others who were going to be prophets of the Most High and teach a different Christianity. And um, some of them, uh, the, the apostles even had to con- contend with, you know, as far as those who were distorting the image of our Lord, distorting the message of our Lord, even back in their times, <clears throat> like the Judaizers among them. <coughs> and we find Martin Luther claiming that the true Christianity had been lost, and he had discovered it, and he was now going to bring it to light. The true understanding of the scriptures. And uh, in our own time, well, relatively speaking, a man like Joseph Smith, who was the founder of Mormonism, uh, which later dubbed itself the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, of a false prophet, blatantly false prophet. And um, in a sense, you might you might almost say that he was one of the early modernists. Um, he was a Mason, a 33rd degree Mason. He incorporated much of Masonic lore and imagery into his Mormonism. <clears throat> um, a, a religion that he basically created out of a total myth- mythology of golden plates that he alone could read, and uh, there's a whole story about the whole thing. Anyway, I mean, it, it it sounds ludicrous, and it really is, okay, when one really examines the history of it. Uh, but anyway, the, to this day, the, the, the this Mormon religion, the, the Church of Latter-day Saints there, <clears throat> says that they have their leaders that come and go, and each leader has the ability to state what is true at that moment, what the doctrine is at that moment. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, this church has undergone all these metamorphoses through Joseph Smith, who actually, uh, <clears throat> there's pretty good evidence to show that he was killed by the Masons for revealing their secrets, <laughs> that he had sworn oaths to maintain secrets. And um, he was that he died giving the, the, the Freemason distress signal, but the Masons decided that he had to die because he revealed the secrets of Masonry in his, in his Mormon religion. So, uh, but then Brigham Young took over, and Brigham, Brigham Young you know, brought in these uh, ideas. I, I guess they came from Joseph Smith originally. Well, polygamy certainly started with Smith, you know. And uh, <clears throat> Young made it a, um, a doctrine of the faith that you had to be polygamous. And uh, <clears throat> the idea of uh, God having been actually a man who was living in another planet, had two sons, Jesus and Lucifer, who disagreed, and God uh, then sided with Jesus, and Lucifer, who was actually also equally son of God, the, the man who was de- deified from the other planet and was given this planet to govern. Um, Lucifer led a rebellion and um, 
I mean, the, the whole mythology is, is really completely anti-Christian, totally contrary to the Gospels. And yet people believe this. But I say that the, the seeds of, of, of um, modernism are there. Uh, and by the way, it's just a, it's, it's a, it's a complete uh, mystery how a religion that had foundations in polygamy could now be considered a very pro-family religion and be admired because it has such a strong family you know, unit and promotes that, you know. But that's because the Mormon religion can morph. Can morph. It, 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 it changes from leader to leader to leader who changes the doctrines to suit the times. Whatever is politically correct, then the leader will adjust what the new doctrine is. But that's exactly what modernism is. It's adjusting the doctrine to suit the times, the mentality of the times. So there's sort of evolution of doctrine that can change from one leader to another. This is what Francis, we had to bring Francis in. This is basically the message of Francis now, that he's bringing in the new doctrine uh, to suit the, the new times. Um, and uh, so the, the essence of modernism is, 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 is throughout all of these, all of these false prophets and false Christs, Christ, all have in common that they update the doctrine to suit the, politic, the politics and the social mores of the times. And one thing that they all also have in common, these false Christs and false prophets, is that when they update to meet the mentality of the times, they update the doctrines and the worship, they always leave the mass behind, the real mass. They always leave that behind. All the false prophets and all the false Christs. And so it is with the Novus Ordo. They've left the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary, of the Mass, behind replaced it with the Novus Ordo, which is essentially a memorial meal, uh, a memorial service. Uh, so... This is, uh, this is something that is prophecy with regard to these end times. Um, and we see them going on right now. They are happening at the same time. We see these things happening now in the Vatican. At the same time, we're looking at the question of Jerusalem being uh, named the capital of Israel and uh, the Muslim world reacting uh, vehemently against it, and uh, but somehow this is all going to fall into place. It's it is all I believe a fulfillment of prophecy, and uh, and so we're going to see uh, the developments of this uh, probably probably come about rather rapidly okay. at this point. Well, Father, you, you mentioned Francis and his Novus Ordo. I thought that uh, that we could end with our weekly Francis Says segment here and talk about some of the... Uh, Francis Says. Okay. Francis Says. Well, you, you know, there actually was a children's program uh, back when I was very young, okay? And that was a long time ago. Okay. And... Uh, it was called Ding Dong School, 
and it was led by Miss Francis. And so, I, I, I would be loath to compare Miss Francis to the Ding Dong School of the Novosoto. Um, the Ding Dong School of Miss Francis was much more pious and much more reverential than what is coming out of the sayings of Chairman Francis. But uh, I, I'm curious exactly what you're referring to here. Yes, I was just going to see if you were aware that your uh, the English translation of the Our Father that the, uh, the Catholic Church has been, been praying for all these years is actually flawed because, according mm. to Francis, it's uh, the... The verse where, where we say, lead us not into temptation, that mm. implies a God that leads us into temptation. So, in mm. fact, that translation is faulty. It should be changed to uh, to say something different, to, to give a different connotation to those words. And so, Francis is actually now proposing to change this English translation of the Our Father. What well, well modernists can improve on everything. You know, they, can improve on, uh, they can improve on God himself. Mm -hmm. They really can. I mean, Francis, I'm, I, there's no doubt in my mind that if Francis could get through those pearly gates, he'd start redecorating it. And I would, this is wrong. You know, you got to change this, you know. And uh, he's going to advise God on what changes God has to make and you know, make things right. Yeah. Now, of course, you know, the original, uh, our father, uh, the, was taught by our Lord in Aramaic to his apostles, okay? We do not have that text. We have it in the earliest in Greek, okay? And uh, it says what it says in Greek, okay? Um, and it does have that sense. You know, lead us not in temptation, just as the Latin does, reflects that, right? Um, and, all, and all of the translations and then the various languages, they all, they all say the same thing. Um, this offends, offends Francis, so it has to go. And he wants to change it to... And do not allow us to fall into temptation, which has a, a real lilt to it, and everybody's going to be stumbling over that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. <clears throat> but um, whether or not he's going to actually have his way and foist that upon the poor victim people who are trying dutifully to follow him where, whithersoever he goest, in this. Yeah. I don't know how many are going to follow him in that. But I, again, rather than explain the true Catholic understanding of those words, he, as a modernist, says, well, we'll improve upon all this. We, we'll, we will find a way to make it better than it is. Okay. So whatever the church has done before, it's all flawed. And, and even with Christ himself, you know, I mean, let's face it, you know, I mean, he, he had to explain somehow to Mary and Joseph why he let them go back from Jerusalem to Nazareth and wind up in the desert, <coughs> only to find out that he wasn't with them. And, uh, and, and actually, God the Father deceived Mary, and Mary was really upset, really angry with God for deceiving her and tricking her into becoming the, the mother of his son, son Jesus. Uh, I mean, these, these are all Francis sayings, see? So I'm, I'm sure that if, if we could uh, uh, give Francis an, enough time, he'd sit down and be happy to rewrite the whole thing for us, <laughs> rewrite the Gospels, and make them turn out right. 
Uh, but that's what modernists do, to suit themselves. He, he'll probably pull this off and, and uh, impose this new radical revision. And rather than uh, instruct the people as the true meaning, the true Catholic meaning of the words, and lead us not into temptation. Um, which I don't know if we want to get into right now, because the program has probably gone on. I've, I've got, I've got more, perhaps, more Francis things. Okay, oh, oh, you do. <laughs> well, maybe we should save that for when he actually does impose that. And then we should bring it up in a future program as to what those words actually mean. Mm -hmm. Lead us not into temptation in the true Catholic sense. How, how silly is it, though, Father, that, that of all the, the terrible problems that, that you see in the Novus Ordo Church, just absolute utter destruction there, and, and his he's taking his time to focus on improving the Our Father. That's but just, but uh, he doesn't see these destructive things as bad. Sure, yeah, that's exactly what he wants. He wants a dirty, messy church. Make a mess of the church. That's exactly what he's got. He's turning the church into the Aegean stables, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is what he likes, though. So, you know, you look at these things as problems. He looks at these things as the fulfillment of his, of his fondest wishes. To, to make a mess of the church. That's what he said, right? That's what he wants. Okay, so that's what he got. <laughs> and he's happy with it, too. Yeah. But he hasn't finished the job yet. Mm -hmm. There are still things he hasn't messed up, and it really bothers him. Yeah. So uh, he's still working on it. You say there are other Francis Sure, Father. There is this, uh, this article from The Telegraph, which uh, I, I just I couldn't pass up here. The, the headline is, Don't argue with the devil. He's much more intelligent than us, says Pope Francis. This is a rather short article, Father. I thought I'd just read it uh, straight from the, the print here, where it says, The devil is more intelligent than mere mortals and should never be argued with, Pope Francis has warned. Satan is not a metaphor or a nebulous concept, but a real person armed with dark powers, the Pope said in forthright remarks made during a television interview. He is evil. He's not like mist. He's not a diffuse thing. He is a person. I'm convinced that one must never converse with Satan. If you do that, you'll be lost, he told a Catholic channel, gesticulating with his hands to emphasize his point. He's more intelligent than us, and he'll turn you upside down. He'll make your head spin. He always pretends to be polite. He does it with priests, with bishops. That's how he enters your mind. But it ends badly if you don't realize what is happening in time. We should tell him, go away, the Pope said. Pope Francis frequently refers to the devil in his homily sermons and on Twitter. He uses various terms to refer, to refer to the Prince of Darkness, including Satan, the Evil One, the Seducer, Beelzebub, and the Great Dragon. Quote, it's a Jesuit, Jesuit thing. He's a Jesuit who is deeply imbued with the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius Loyola, Loyola, which allow people to discern the movements of the good and bad spirit. A Vatican analyst and author of The Great Reformer, Francis, and The Making of a Radical Pope said, for him, this is real. These are not metaphors. It may not be the way that people speak nowadays, and some Catholics may be taken aback by it. A lot of people are uncomfortable with the idea of evil being real, but anyone who knows the spirituality of the Jesuits would not be surprised. Three years ago, the Argentinian pontiff told a convention of exorcists from around the world that they were doing sterling work in combating the devil's work. And it goes on, Father, for a couple more paragraphs to talk about uh, how Francis is... 
radical. Well, according to this author, this is a, this is a Jesuit thing. Right? <laughs> he's, he's this is specifically a Jesuit I, thing. I can, but you know, I, I would have to agree with Francis, <laughs> and uh, I think church traditionally would say, don't discuss things with the devil. Yeah. Don't argue with him. I mean, within exorcism, the priests are, are instructed, do not respond to the devil. Yeah. Do not respond to any questions he has. You ask the questions, and he has to answer them. So if that's what he means, he's correct, okay? And Satan, as an angelic intellect, he is an angelic intellect, yes, he has a, a superior intelligence to ours. And if we're willing to negotiate with him, or enter into meaningful dialogue with him, that is so-called, then we are going to lose. So I would have to say that I agree with him uh, depending on what he means. What he says can be accurate. Yeah. Okay? But I would just say then the, the whole Novus Ordo is, is precisely a kind of dialogue with the devil. And uh, he should give that up, right? Um, <clears throat> if he really believes this, then I would like to think, uh, I know, <laughs> but perhaps naively, that he, he would see that what he has here with this, this Novus Ordo is precisely this dialogue with the devil going on here. And uh, hopefully he himself will repent and reform of this and stop this ecumenism, which is a form of dialogue with the devil. I just just found it astounding, Father, that this this author here he he acts like like, like Francis is, is some sort of, of radical and says how so many Catholics are, are amazed to hear this kind of black and white thing that evil actually exists. He, he says that's I think that's a quote somewhere here that many Catholics are amazed to hear that evil actually exists and that things are in such black and white terms, and it's it just the most basic of Catholic, that evil exists, that Catholics nowadays, we've fallen so far that yeah. Catholics oh, nowadays yeah. are amazed that evil exists. Well, I mean, that tells you this, this is all this is, the This is a radical thing that Pope Francis is saying, the devil is real. That's, that's a radical thing, and Catholics are, are amazed by that. Problem, okay? There are Novosoro Catholics who will say, thank goodness Francis is speaking now the traditional Catholic faith. <laughs> yeah. Look, Look, so many Catholics are confused about this in the Novus Ordo, and now you're going to find conservative Catholics saying, hip hip hooray, bully for Francis, he's coming out and saying these radical truths of the faith, and confronting people, and finally, finally, laying down the law, as they said about Paul VI when he wrote about the devil back in the 1960s, you know, personal, and uh, he's real, and, uh, you know, the worst... Uh, 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 weapon of the devil is making people think he doesn't exist, and now Francis is championing the traditional Catholic doctrine on the devil. But people have to step back for a minute and realize <clears throat> who is he calling the devil? Who has he been denouncing as Neo-Palatians, Neo-Gnostics? Who has he been condemning as having a spirit, an evil spirit, the traditionalists. <clears throat> These are the ones he's actually calling as being kind of 
emissaries, representatives, deputies of the dark forces. Capitalists, <clears throat> capitalism is evil, not socialism. He told the, the group out in, 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 in California <clears throat> of radical socialists that it wasn't socialism that was causing poverty, it's capitalism that is the enemy. And they have to activate against it to take it down. So, you know, the, 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 what I fear is this, that the conservative followers of Francis, the conservative Noah's Ordo people, who are, are cringing when most of the time when Francis takes a breath to say anything, even inhales as though he's going to say something like, oh, no, what now? They hear something like that and they think, ah, you see, he really is on our side. He really is at heart traditional Catholic. He still has the doctrine. They're making a fatal mistake, though. And that is, if you see, who does he identify with the devil and the evil forces? <clears throat> it's tradition. The hidebound traditionalists, right? Who are like the Pharisees of old. The judgmental ones, <clears throat> right? Who, unlike Francis, do consider that we must judge homosexuality as being evil and homosexual behavior as being an abomination before God. They are the evil ones, okay? And uh, generally all traditionalists who are basically the enemy. <clears throat> These are the ones he's already branded. Somebody says, yes, there's a personal evil here and we must not dialogue with them or we must not discuss with them. We must say, go away. Go away, get away. Well, he's already told you who he's talking about there. So, you know, we, we have to understand the significance of what he's actually saying here and not understand it the way we would like it to. We want it, him to mean it, but understand what he's actually, he himself means by it. Who has he been denouncing all this time as being representatives of the devil? deranged even, mentally deranged because the young people who are tied to tradition. He's actually said that. Um, so when he makes statements like that, I don't see that he's in any way standing up for a tradition, the discernment of spirits, or the Jesuit tradition. I see him basically positioning this whole thing uh, according to what he himself brands as evil and diabolical and, and it always with him seems to come back to tradition, Catholic tradition, capitalism and and so on and so on right um, whatever does not fit into his modernist uh, worldview yeah. so wow. anyway and by the way uh, you're familiar with the book that came out in Italian uh, il Papa Il Papa Dittatore eh? yeah. uh, The Dictator Pope yeah. I understand it's available on English and it's about how Francis is tyrannical that he there's this, this, this media image that is projected of him just being so easygoing and so mellow and so kind and genteel and and uh, but Actually, by temperament and also by practice, he is very much 
the iron fist and the iron glove. The, the, you know, uh, that he is, he is very much a dictator. And this is really rubbing a lot of people the wrong way, right? Even those who are ideological allies of his are really getting irritated by his... Uh, both passive and active aggress aggression, right? He's active and passive-aggressive. Um, that's my interpretation, anyway. But there are two books that people could read that would be another enlightening for them. And they're probably both written by the people who don't question that he's the Pope, even. You know? Even though the books are very candid. One of them is a book by uh, George Neumeyer, uh, The Political Pope. And he shows in there that the various factions in the Novus Ordo, he doesn't call it that, but, but in the church he says that got Francis elected, that worked for him. Uh, socialist, Marxist, liberals, progressivists, and so on. They all, they all, the St. Gallen group, the uh, the Pact of the Catacombs, they all were pushing for Rigolio to become Pope. And, uh, but he doesn't mention one thing, that a hundred years before any of these things were happening, that the Masons called to elect a man like Rigolio. He doesn't mention that connection. The Masons wanted him. That was 200 years ago. Uh, and so, you know, you read this litany of all these different groups who were all wanted, conspiring together to get Francis in the, in the, in the chair of Peter, you know. Um, but, uh, but that's the one he leaves out, and that's the one that puts it all together, that ties it all together, you know. Interesting book, nonetheless, if one knows the background and fills in the blanks. And then this Il Papa Dittatore, the Dictator Pope, by Marcantonio Colonia. At least that's the name that he took from the admirable admiral. From the, uh, I think the Venetian admiral uh, at the Battle of Lepanto. That's his pen name, known to plume, as they call it. <clears throat> uh, because he says, what I'm writing is true, then to use my real name would be like ecclesiastical suicide, you know, precisely because what I'm saying is the truth. And uh, so I think those two books are, are worth reading to anybody who has any doubts or any illusions about Francis being like a modern St. Francis, right? Because he is not like a modern St. Francis, and he's not even like Miss Francis of Ding Dong School, not at all. <clears throat> he is really il papa di tutori. and uh, but this is again typical of modernism. They have one face to the world, but beyond that, behind that, <clears throat> is the iron fist, and uh, that they will brook no opposition, even as Saint Pius the Tenth wrote in his encyclical on the errors of the modernists. He said they are characterized. <clears throat> by pride and audacity. This is, we, this is what we see in Francis. We see that pride and audacity that says, I am going to rewrite the Our Father. So anyway, uh, I guess we've kind of gone now for a <laughs> full circle back to your sayings of Chairman Francis. So. Yeah, I'm sure we'll have more uh, 
Francis isms by this time next week, but I say, uh, well, I can't say I wish for it, but I would say <laughs> I, I'm okay. afraid you're probably right. Yeah. Because I hear him taking a breath right now, ready to come out. There's some new atrocity. Yeah, well, I'd say that's enough for this week. So, thank you for being here tonight, Father. Oh, you're very, you're time. very welcome, Tom. You, you, you always make it uh, interesting. Well, interesting for me. I'm not sure about the viewers. Anyway, thank you. Uh, thank you. No Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.